you may have, um, those of you who are visiting, you may have heard me mentioning about our, our pastor being away, and so the chaplain in the uh, National Air Guard, and uh, but he gives me opportunity to, to preach, and I need to uh, to thank him for uh, this particular passage that he has allowed me to preach. Uh, James Boyce, in his sermon series through Genesis, he introduced this chapter. Uh, by noting the difficulty of the subject matter. He, he had been looking at some commentaries, and he noted that two of the commentaries, they just skipped it. They just skipped it. There was another one who was willing to make some comments, but said, I would not offer this. I don't see how I would offer it for uh, homiletics, which is mean for preaching. I just wouldn't know what you would do with that. So with that in mind, let's, let's just jump into this passage. And I'm going to begin reading in Genesis 34. I invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles. Uh, let me just note, if you're reading uh, from the, uh, the church Bibles, it's the New International Version, a good version. I'll, I'm, I'm reading from a different version, the English Standard Version. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Let's stop there for a moment. These verses present the setting. Uh, Dinah is Leah's daughter. Shechem is the son of the king of the city. He bears the title of prince. And he, in whatever manner, could have been by force, maybe by seduction, whatever, he lies with Dinah. And he falls in love with her. Indeed, he is so in love with her, he wants to marry her. And the custom then is, well, you go to your dad, and your dad goes to the bride's dad, and they work it out. So this is the arrangement. So what are the implications so far? And we have to be careful with this, because so little is stated. In regards to Dinah, for example, there is nothing, not enough here to to form any kind of judgment of her. Was she wrong to have ventured out? Maybe, maybe not. Did she, did she somehow consent to what had happened? We don't know. And it's best not even to go there. The, the episode has often been referred to as the rape of Dinah. And indeed, depending on what Bible translation you have, it might even have that term there. But the, the Hebrew verb that is used here, well, it could be that. It could be consensual. You just have to go through the the context. And when you look at verse 3, it kind of gives an implication that it wasn't just just this kind of raw act of force. Well, we do know, though, that when that Hebrew word is used, it is an illicit means of physical relations. It is always wrong from the perspective of the Scriptures. And it is the act itself that humiliates Dinah. Her honor has been violated. It does not matter what her role may be. It doesn't matter what her feelings for Shechem might be. 
And it doesn't matter what Shechem's falling in love does. It doesn't make it right. It is wrong. And Shechem, by the way, I want you to note here, he's not trying to make what he did right. He doesn't show regrets. He's not trying to make amends. He's not offering marriage as some kind of restitution. He saw Dinah. He acted according to how he felt. He did not feel remorse. It just so happened that he fell in love, and now he wants her for his wife. He's the prince of the setting, and so he goes to his father. All right, let's continue picking up here, beginning in verse 5. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And Shechem is head over heels for Dinah, isn't he? And his father Hamor, who has the, uh, the duty to speak for his son, he sees an opportunity in what has happened. He had previously he had sold land to Jacob. Now he asks not only for the hand of Dinah for his son, but he's making a proposal here. Let's let our two peoples merge together through intermarriage. I mean, it's a, it's a win-win proposition. The two peoples become one strong people, and no doubt, Hamer also values the wealth of Jacob. Now, it seems like a fair and a positive proposal. Let's take what admittedly could be construed as improper, and let's turn it into a positive consequence. Let's, let's redeem a sinful situation. And, th- and this, by the way, is in keeping with the law that would be written gener- generation later by Moses. When a man did this to a young woman, he was to marry her. So there it is. Shechem is not merely, merely willing to marry Dinah. He earnestly desires to marry her. He's not merely willing to pay, you know, some kind of restitution. He gladly will pay the highest price and gift because he values her so much. I mean, what could be fairer? What could be more generous? Well, now enter the brothers, and specifically the sons of Leah, who are Dinah's full-blooded brothers. Now, Jacob has waited for them before making any decision. And we're never told, by the way, how Jacob feels about the matter. But we do know the mind of the brothers. Back in verse 7, the men were indignant and very angry 
because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. We know where they feel on this. Now, they are going to give the response in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now let's make some observations here. First of all, know who replies. It's not Jacob the father, it's the sons of Jacob. Secondly, we're told that they answered deceitfully. And they justify their deceit because of the affront to their sister. Now, let's note what it is that they request. On the surface, circumcision appears, it appears reasonable from their position. Because that's the sign of who they are. That's their identity. And they are saying, look, if the two peoples were to become one, this is going to become the deal breaker. Because this is how we preserve our identity. Now, what is it that they do not communicate? Well, they don't mention that circumcision is the sign of God's covenant with his people. This is a sacred act. It is a sacred sign. It is denoting the promise of God that they belong to him. And the brothers are going to use this sacred act as a means to revenge themselves in a horrible manner. They will not merely commit an atrocity. They will sully the very name of their God in doing so. All right, let's, let's continue on in this, this great story here. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's sons Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Amor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, do you note the significant reasoning of Hamor and Shechem? can be a little hard to normally convince the men to take on this particular act, and yet, as he notes in verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? Well, let's just agree with them, and they will dwell with us. I mean, 
Hamar is saying, what a great financial boom. Look at the wealth of these people. It could be ours. And this is, as with all marital arrangements, is seen as an opportunity to, to better one's standing and financial status. This is still, there's no deceit going on here by Hamer and Shechem. This is just, yeah, what a wonderful opportunity, and let's do this. Well, do you see how things are playing out now? What we have here, we have two distinct cultures, polar opposite cultures, approaching an incident from their two widely different perspectives. We'll call them the Shechemites. The Shechemites see the Dinah incident as, well, perhaps as a delicate problem, but still, it is no big deal. I mean, Shechem, after all, he's a prince of the city. Maybe he should have shown some restraint, but he is, after all. I mean, he's a prince. He's one of the power persons of the community. And what he did, by the way, is not unusual. And not even considered all that wrong by most people. For that matter, here is a nobleman, a prince of the city, offering marriage. That's an offer that every woman in our city dreams about. Here we are now with an opportunity to turn a, let's call it a misunderstanding, into something that will benefit everyone. That's their perspective. For the Jacobites, or the Israelites, an outrage has taken place on several levels. A man has forced himself upon a maiden. That the perpetrator was a prince of the city's royal family, that makes it all the worse. Because that family represents being the host of the newcomers. All the more then, they should be the ones who are respecting and protecting Jacob's family. Instead, the prince violates their sister. And then, and then you know, Shechem and his father and everything, they just don't get it. There's no apology. There's no repentance. There is simply this arrogant man and his father who think they can buy anything and any person that they want. This story is not playing out well, is it? All right, let's, let's get to the worst part of it. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. This is not justice. This is not even revenge. It's a travesty. This is an act of terror. However great Shechem's crime might seem, it did not warrant murder, much less genocide. Simeon and Levi possess a monstrous 
blood-curling hatred. And what of the other brothers? Well, they take advantage. Simeon's and Levi's violence to do what? To rob the city. Even taking the children and their wives as nothing more than property to plunder. And all because, well, verse 27, the city, it says now, was guilty of defiling their system. Unless we forget Jacob. Now, Jacob had abdicated his responsibility as head of the household. And here is his response after all of this takes place. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I want you to consider, what is Jacob upset about? His safety. His son's rash actions have put them all in danger. And that's the extent of the concern that he expresses. He doesn't say to them, what is this injustice that you have committed? There's no anger how his sons have profaned the name of their covenant God. There's no shame about the, the deceit, the unlawful taking of life, the multitude of other sins rolled into this atrocity. It's just, what were you thinking? You know, this is what Jacob had always prided himself about. Jacob always did think ahead and how to work the angles and so on. His sons have not. And then we have this this justification of Simeon and Levi. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Do we really believe that it is their sister they were so concerned about? Is it not rather their own honor that has been offended? You know, Dinah is always referred to as their sister, our sister. The fury of the brothers cannot be appeased by marriage for Dinah, not because they're concerned for Dinah, but they feel that they are the ones who have been sinned against. They are the ones, in truth, who have been humiliated. I've got to remember to thank Sam for giving me this, this passage to preach on. What do we do with this mess? I mean, the whole episode is an embarrassment with no heroes. There are no positive role models. There's no clear purpose for why it should be included in the scriptures. In any moral lessons we come up with, we can say, well, don't do that. That's about as far as we can go. But I want us to consider two dynamics taking place here that I think will help us not only to to understand the times back then, but help us to understand our own today. First of all is the clash of cultures. The episode of Dinah reveals the clash of two distinct cultures. We've already talked about this. In particular here, they review sexual relations differently. Again, for the Shechemites, young men will be young men. Okay? Here's a great opportunity for Dinah. We could turn this into a win-win situation. It can benefit both, both peoples. What is the big deal? Now, the sons of Jacob are not themselves paragons of virtue, and 
You'll actually see that later on in later episodes of them pretty much showing their hypocrisy. But though they may be hypocrites of their own moral code, there is a code nevertheless. And that code includes that you do not force yourself on a maiden, and particularly on the maiden daughter of a guest. What is the big deal? Well, the Shechemites have humiliated their sister and themselves, something that the Shechemites just never seem to get. Now, is that not like the growing gap between our own Christian culture and our secular American culture of today? I mean, at one time, the gap was not wide. And we know that there has always been promiscuity. But it was recognized as just that. I mean, one time, society, at least on the outside, looked down upon uh, premarital relations. Now society actually looks down upon premarital chastity. I remember how this, how this first hit me. I mean, it really hit me back in the 90s. And I'm up in Philadelphia, and I, there's a young couple that um, wanted me to do their wedding, and I'm doing premarital counseling with them. And I asked them a question. How do your parents feel about you getting married? And they they kind of looked at each other sheepishly, and I thought, oh, it's, they, they don't approve of, of each other. They said, oh, no, 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 each, they, they approve of, of each of us. They, they just wish we would live together for a while before we got married. You know? It's the kids who are doing the odd thing by being chased before marriage. And that's when I realized that the sexual revolution of the 60s, it's over. It's long gone. What's the big deal? That's what today's culture wants to know. Our society long ago removed sexual mores off the category of morality altogether. It just doesn't even belong there. As one person once explained to me her code, as long as there are no victims, anything is permissible. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about who wants to have physical relations with whom? What's the big deal about who wants to to marry whom? What's the big deal, for that matter, about religion? What does it matter who or what God one believes in? Or, Or for that matter, whether one believes in God or not? As long as we're not harming anyone, what does it matter what we do? As long as we're being decent neighbors, and by decent neighbors, I mean we're not causing problems for other people, what does it matter what we believe? That is our society today. This is a gap that is growing ever wider. And the question for us followers of Christ is this. Will we be faithful to our Lord and Savior? Yeah, that's the question he asks when the Son of Man returns. Is he going to find faithfulness on this earth? Are my people going to be faithful? Will we remain obedient to the clear moral teachings of scriptures? Will we be obedient out of the motivation that we desire to please God? 
Not because, well, we've reasoned it out and doesn't seem like it's going to harm anyone or maybe this is how it's better. No, this is what pleases God. Will we take the opportunity being afforded to us to do this, to display what it means to be devoted to following Jesus Christ regardless of the consequence? That's the new opportunity being presented to our generation. I mean, growing up, most of you, you remember this, if we tried to be obedient to the commands of God in Scripture, I mean, what the worst that could happen is we could be teased and saying that we're goody-two-shoes. Okay, that, that's about it. Now, we're to denounce as being intolerant, as being frigid. Something's wrong with us. Now we actually have the opportunity to live for Christ when there is no benefit in our society. Will we now remain obedient to the demand for holiness? And will we remain obedient, for that matter, to the demand to love? Or will we be like the sons of Jacob and let hatred spill out? I mean, we're not going to go and I don't think, go and kill folks and so on. But what's going to come out of us? Is it love or will it be hatred? And Jesus' demand on this is unsparing. You know what Jesus says. He does not say to love those who have the same moral values as we. He does not say to love those who treat us kindly and even fairly. He says what? He says to love our enemies. Love whoever considers us to be intolerant or frigid. Love whoever considers us to be enemies. This is the opportunity now that we have. That's what the clash of cultures presents to us. It presents to us also one other opportunity, to trust in the promises of God. You know, this awful episode turned out to be yet another example of how God will carry out his promise. Now, you remember this, this whole series is that overarching theme. God made that promise all the way back to Eve. There's going to, from her seed, there's going to rise someone. There's going to be that Messiah. Abraham is going to come from Abraham and then from his descendants. Now, that's how the promise will be carried out. Well, in this situation, we have two dangers of that taking place. One was presented by the Shechemite culture. That danger was, let's merge the two peoples into one people, and thus for Jacob's clan to lose their covenant identity. I might seem the circumcision, well, that, that was going to keep that identity. No, that was just a sham rite. There was no mention of the covenant significance. The Shechemites certainly saw nothing religious about it. Now, if a merger had taken place, the covenant would have effectively been forfeited. Now, the act of Levi and Simeon was disgraceful. Nevertheless, through their very sin, that merger did not take place. Now, the other danger was that the folly of Jacob's sons created for themselves. Namely, they themselves, Jacob is right. We're now going to get destroyed. And we'll learn in the next chapter that God directly intervenes to thwart this danger. In verse 5, it'll say, 
that as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God's promise of the Messiah remained ever secure, however insecure the circumstances surrounded God's people. The line of the Messiah was going to carry on. And because of that, well, I don't know exactly the future. I can't predict America's future. It doesn't look promising from my perspective. This clash of cultures is likely to grow. It's clear that secular values have triumphed. There will be growing pressure to marginalize Christians who remain true to the moral code of Scripture and to God's demands for holiness, um, even as I think Christians remain true, if they do remain true, to love one's neighbors. But here's what I know for certain, that the God who made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought to fruition the promise of the Messiah, is the same God whom Christians today still have. It is the same God with whom our Lord Jesus Christ mediated a covenant on our behalf. God the Father and God the Son have promised this, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in different ages and parts of the world, the church has either prospered, and other times it has suffered. But whatever may be the circumstances of our lifetime, the promises of God remain secure. The kingdom of God will prevail. Christ will return in glory. And whether our troubles come from the world or, or are of our own making, God keeps his promises. And there may perhaps be someone here who has not known or understood the promise of God to provide the Messiah for our salvation. And indeed, you might even find yourself identifying more with the secular perspective. And for one reason being that you have seen the sinful behavior of those who profess to follow Christ. Well, as the scripture so embarrassingly reveals here and other times, those who bear the name Christian can be guilty of whatever sin it is we rail about, all the more then, all the more then we invite you to enter into the covenant of God that is found in Jesus Christ. We follow him, however inadequately that we do it. We follow him, not because of the laws that he laid down for us. It's because of the life that he laid down on the cross on our behalf. And we invite you to know how sweet the name of Jesus so sounds to us. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all your promises, the one who will come again uh, as the fulfillment of every promise. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. How sweet his name is to us. May we remain faithful to him. May we be true children of yours to show the love of our Lord Jesus Christ to all. In his name we pray. Amen.